Well, this is the time of the year when my ESPN app starts uh, throwing these alerts at me that there, are, there is breaking news, right? Uh, I'm a big baseball fan. There's no baseball happening right now, but this is yet still one of those favorite times of the year for a baseball fan because this is when all the players are, are switching sides and we're signing free agents, we're making big time trades and deals and so breaking news and so when I, whenever that alert goes off, I'm expecting something big is coming, right? Something big is coming. For example, breaking news, the New York Yankees traded for reigning National League MVP Giancarlo Stanton. Um, and got them for like nothing. Uh, so it's awesome. That, that's like tidings of great joy that will be for all Yankees fans, uh, right? So uh, very excited about that. But, but maybe baseball's not your thing. The hot stove, you don't care about that. Uh, but, but anytime you hear those words, breaking news, right? Breaking news, CNN, you know, or whatever news station is you watch, you know, breaking news. Like we're expecting, okay, something Something semi-important should be coming, or at least they're just trying to get our attention and get some more ratings, whatever, but, but we're expecting something, something significant when we hear those words. Um, they carry with them a heightened sense of drama, right? That something, that, is, that whatever is about to follow those two words is something significant for, for us that we need to, we need to know about. And, and so that's exactly what's happening in our text today. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 40. And Isaiah is alerting to us to, to not just about some important news story, right? Not just telling us about some important news that's going to happen. Uh, he's not simply trying to grab ratings or attention here, but, but he's actually pointing us that the reality that, that something greater than the world has ever seen is coming, right? Real breaking news, right? And that's what we see in our text, Isaiah 40, uh, verses 1 through 11. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles. It's on page 599 on those Bibles on your row. And, and let us, let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low and the uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, 
we thank you just for this, this season of Advent where we celebrate uh, the first coming uh, of your son, Jesus Christ, who, who came to us in the most humble of states. And, and not only do we celebrate that first Advent, but we look forward to the second Advent, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would fill us as we read these words and, and study these words from Isaiah this morning. You'd fill us with great hope. In, in the glory and the grace that you, uh, you have shown to us in, in your first coming, and, and the glory and the grace that, that in, enables us to, to step in and be a part of your second coming, to, to, to rule and reign with you in glory, and, and to experience the fullness of a restored and renewed world when you return, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you fill our hearts with hope, you fill our hearts with worship, you fill our hearts with a desire to, to proclaim to all the, the good news of your glory and your grace that has come through the, the life and the death and the resurrection of you, Lord Jesus. Uh, Holy Spirit, have your way in us today. Would you move us? Would you grow us? Would you convict us? Would you, would you encourage us with your grace? We pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. You may have a seat. So Isaiah is making it clear that, that something much bigger than any breaking news story we could think of is coming. Uh, something much bigger than any new Star Wars film, which I haven't seen yet, so don't spoil it for me. Right? Uh, something greater than the, the world has ever seen is coming. Something, something we've never witnessed before is coming. And Isaiah tells us that what's, com- what's coming is, is actually bringing down mountains, Right? Mountains are coming down before whatever is coming. Like they're being leveled. That's what he says in, the, in this passage. What could possibly do that? What could do that? Well, well let's, let's ask the text, shall we? Let, let's walk through the text and ask a, a, a few questions of the passage and, and seek to get our answers from the passage. Who, let's ask him first, who is coming? Right? Who is coming? And then we'll ask, why is he coming? And finally, what must we do to respond? That's what we'll look at today. First question, who is coming? And you find the answer in verses 3 and 4. Right? Isaiah writes, a voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, the rough places a plain. Right? These are, these are well-known verses, especially at this time of the year. We, we know these, these verses. Uh, but, but any listener or reader in, in ancient times would have immediately recognized what is coming here. What, that what is being talked about, who, who is coming, is a king. A king is coming. Royalty is coming. That's what these words are pointing to. Why, well, why would they know that? Why would they know that? Well, because in these times when a king or an emperor uh, journeyed to another part of the kingdom that maybe he had never even been to before or he hadn't been to in a long time, well, what would happen? They would construct new roadways, right? They would construct new highways. They would construct built boulevards for the king. They, these, these things were built, right? Well, there's an inscription from ancient Babylonia announcing that a king was going to another part of the kingdom, and this is what it says. Make his way good. Renew his road, make straight his path, hew him out a track. In other words, you construct new highways, new roadways, new boulevards were built for the king because the king doesn't just use any old road, right? He's the king. He gets special roads. 
well, why, why is there this need to build, build these new roads for the king other than just, you know, the, the uh, megalomania maybe of the king? Well, the answer is that the creation of these new highways and boulevards was symbolic of what the kingship represents, right? It symbolized the authority of the king, first of all, right? It symbolized the authority of the king. See, what's, what's happening here? We're, we're knocking down barriers to get to this place. We're, we're bridging gaps that need to be bridged over. And just as we seek to remove all resistance from the king getting to the place that he desires to go to, it's, it's symbolic of also removing every resistance of the people to the king's authority, right? That, that you're not supposed to hold anything back from the king. You are to submit yourself completely to his rule, to his reign, to his authority, But it also represented not only his authority, but also the the healing influence. The healing influence of of true kingship. Like when it's as it should be. And we we get this principle, right? Um, You know, we we understand that a a sports team under a great coach, right, overperforms, right? They they flourish under that, that good coaching. But under a bad coach, an even good team can just totally collapse, the business, a business that's led by good management flourishes, while, while business that is under the leadership of poor management, it does not, right? A, a good leader in the community, the community flourishes, but with bad leadership, the community dwindles. At whatever level, big or small, when authority is rightfully used, it brings with it like this replenishing, this restoration, this flourishing. And the image given here is that of a king coming to this impassable wilderness, where there are these mountains and these huge valleys, these chasms, these canyons, and, and now all of a sudden it's passable. It's passable. The king comes to this desolate, uninhabitable wilderness, a desert, right? And now it's habitable. These new roadways were built not only to illustrate the absolute authority of the king, but also to show the, the healing influence of a true king. And so, So you know when you hear this voice, this voice in Isaiah, that a king is coming. A king is coming, but there's more here. There's more here. If you you zoom in more closely to these verses, verses 3 through 5, and and you lump verse 5 in together here, the language here is going on before just beyond just the normal language of a king, just any king coming. This isn't just any king. Think about it. When an earthly king comes, you construct a a, a pass. You you find the pass through the mountains and you build a roadway through the pass that's in the mountains. Or when you see the canyon before you, you you construct a bridge over the canyon. But this king, when he comes, what does Isaiah say? He he says that the chasm, the the canyon, it's gone. It disappears. It is no more. It's it's brought up, right? And and that the mountain comes down. He's he's bringing mountains down. What, What kind of king can this be? It's not just any king. It's the king, right? The king. The king of kings. And Isaiah is pointing us to the reality uh, that deep down we all recognize here. If we really think about it, we, we recognize a little bit of this reality. And it's also pointing us to one of the deepest hopes in the history of the human race. And, and that's a big breaking news kind of statement right there, right? That's a ratings grabber, if you will. But what do I mean by that? Isaiah is is trying to tell us that the whole world is like an uninhabitable wilderness. The entire planet is like a desert. Think about it. This world, what is it filled with? It's filled with death. 
We all die. There's not, not one of us who gets out of here not dying. Right? It's filled with disease. It's filled with war and conflict. There are all kinds of injustices, poverty, divisiveness of every kind, racism, sexism, classism, and you know, just keep the isms coming, right? There, there's all kinds of brokenness in this world. The, the, the whole world is like this, and, and yet we, we all, deep down, we recognize that and we long for it to be different. We're, we all recognize deep down this is not how this world should be. It's not how we would want it to be. But have you, have you ever asked why? Why is the world like that? Why is it like this? Well, the reality is, is that the, the world is under incompetent leadership. And that is not a political statement. I'm not talking about politicians. I'm talking about you and me, us. We're the incompetent ones. We're all the incompetent ones. Every human being on the planet is incompetent to lead and to rule and to guide this world. The world is like this because our lives are under incompetent leadership. Us, right? You and I and every other human being on the planet, we, we are the incompetent ones. But when the king comes, the ultimate king, when he comes, there will be ultimate healing to the world. That's what we see in verse 5. It says, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Right? This, this means that this, this king is the king of the whole world, right? The whole world sees him. He's the king over, it says, all flesh witnesses the glory of this king. He's the king over all of the world, not a part of the world, not a portion of the world, but all of the world. It's all his. It's all his. But if this king and his glory will be seen by the whole world, then, then where is he coming from? Well, he's not coming from the world. He's not rising up amongst the peoples. Right? He's coming from the outside. He's coming from outside of the world. And Isaiah is declaring that there is a true king, a divine king, the king of kings. And this king possesses absolute authority over all things. And he is coming and when he comes, he brings with him absolute and complete healing for all of it. He's coming. He's coming. That's what Isaiah says. That's, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of this passage. For we can see all the brokenness in the world, and there's no denying that, it, that this world is not as it should be. But, but you and me and everyone else, we're part of that brokenness. We're not going to be able to fix it. We contribute to it. We all sin. We all fail. We all fall short. Our only hope is a true king who's coming to us from the outside. A true king who is the king. Who can re renew and restore and put everything right. And Isaiah says with absolute certainty. Not a question in his mind. Th this king is coming. He's coming. Second question. Why? Why is he coming? Well, to get... The, uh, Isaiah's answer to this question, we need to understand a little bit of the historical context in which Isaiah is, is living in and writing in. And we've been talking about this. We've been in a couple passages from Isaiah the last few weeks. Of course, this is several years down the road. Uh, a different king of Judah is, is reigning. Hezekiah is now the king of Judah at this point. Not King Ahaz, as we saw in kind of chapters 9 and 11 earlier. But, but, but Isaiah is writing all of this over 700 years before the birth of Christ. 
He's writing these words, more than 700 years before Jesus is born. And if you were to sit down and read Isaiah chapter 1 through 39, which you should do at some point, you may not do it today, but, but you should read Isaiah 1 through 39. But as you do that, what you see in Isaiah 1 through 39 is almost all judgment, condemnation, judgment, judgment, judgment. It's, it's all that you see. You, you read through it, Isaiah, or really any of the prophets, that's what you see for the most part, is they, they are condemning people for their sins. They start condemning people for the sins of oppressing the poor, for, for, uh, for greed, for racial prejudice. Right? And, then, and then they start condemning the people for sins of sexual impurity and immorality, for fa- failing to honor their marriage covenant, for failing to care for their families. And in the end, what do you see? Every single human being on the planet is sinful. We're all sinful. It also reveals to us a little bit of the politics of our God. He's not going to fall into the Republican camp or the Democrat camp, right? He's neither. He's neither. He's a Republican Democrat or a Democrat Republican, but he's, he's not any, any one of them, right? He condemns all sides of that. They're all broken. They're all sinful. They're all flawed. They're all flawed. All people have failed to honor God as their king. But by the end of Isaiah 39, there, there is absolutely nothing in Isaiah 39 really besides condemnation and judgment. In fact, at the very end of Isaiah 39, uh, uh, Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God to King Hezekiah. basically says, here's what's happening. Because of the sins of the people of Judah, you guys, you're going to be taken away into exile. You're going to exile into captivity into Babylon. That's what's happening. Right? But then immediately, like immediately after saying this word of judgment, this word of condemnation, Isaiah 40, the very first words of Isaiah 40, you're, you're, you're going to be condemned, but then he says, but I want you to be comforted, my people. I want you to be comforted, my people. And that right there, God addresses them as my people. That's a powerful word right there. That no matter what happens, no matter what you've done, you will always be my people. You will always be my people. Look at verses 1 and 2 again. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So, in other words, what this is saying, Judah, you're going off in exile. You're you're, you're condemned for your sin. But... (laughs) But, but your, her warfare, her, her, struggle, her struggle will be completed. It will come to an end. This, this isn't the last word. This, this exile, this judgment for your sin is not the final word for you, Judah. It, it will be completed. But make note that Isaiah isn't writing this here, like future tense. Like, hey, one day this will happen. No, he, he writes it like her warfare is ended. Her iniquity, her sins are pardoned. They are forgiven. This is, he's writing it in the past, right? He's writing it as, as if it's already completed, already done. In other words, he's saying, what I'm, what I'm going to put you through is not permanent. It is not permanent. I'm not abandoning you. I'm not just casting you away, washing my hands of you. That's not what I'm doing. Why? Well, the answer is here in the text, right? It's right here in verse 2. It says, her iniquity is pardoned. Her sins are forgiven. That's what that means, she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, when you first read that, and you first glance at that, she's received double. 
for all her sins. You know, you, you might read that and kind of think, okay, so uh, she got double punishment for her sins. And so she works it off. She pays God back somehow. She, she works off the punishment. She takes it all. And then God is able to bring her back in. But that is not what verse 2 says. That is not what it says. You know, see, we need to understand that some of us, some of you, so, some of us, we have this view of God like he is just some angry boss, some angry overlord who is just always watching you, waiting for you to screw it up just so he can whack you, right? Just so he can come down and just drop the hammer on you for how terrible you are. That's, that's some of our views of God. That's how we see God. So if that's your view of God, it makes sense that you would look at this verse and think, okay, this is double punishment. God's just really just dropping it on them, and they're going to have to work it off. And then once, maybe if they do it the right way, they do it the way he ple- it pleases him, he'll, he'll take them back in. But that is not what it's saying. You need to understand what the word double is referring to. What it's modifying here in the passage. It, it's not referring to punishment, but it's referring to the pardoning. To the pardoning of the iniquity, the pardoning of the sins. If you look at this very same verse, we, we read from the English Standard Version of the Bible here. But if you look at the same verse in the New American Standard uh, Version of the, of the Scriptures, it says, her iniquity has been removed. Right? Or in the NIV, it says, her sin has been paid for. The double is not referring to the punishment. The double is referring to the payment for the sins. For the payment of the sins. She has received from the Lord's hand double payment for all her sins. This is telling us that the reason why the exile will only be temporary, why it will only be for a a time of discipline and not a, a permanent thing, is that God himself has provided the double payment for sins. He's provided all the payment. And that payment is double Payment, double payment. What does that mean? We'll go down to verses 9 through 11 here. Look at verses 9 through 11 again. It says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. These verses are giving this extraordinary picture of what it will look like when the king shows up, when he comes to us. And verse 10 shows us that he's a warrior king. He is mighty. He is strong. He possesses all, all power, if you will. His, his arm rules for him. The, the word arm is a very important word when you're looking at the Old Testament and the, the Hebrew scriptures, right? The, the word arm is a Hebrew metaphor for power. It's for power. But what do you see the arm of the Lord doing in verse 11? What do you see the arm of the Lord doing in verse 11? He's tending his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs into those powerful arms. He carries them close to his heart. Tenderly, he cares for them. Gently, he leads those that are with young. That means he cares for the weak. He cares for those that are at the, the, the most susceptible to danger. He cares for the weak. The warrior is a shepherd. The warrior is a shepherd. He's, he's mighty and compassionate. 
That is who God is. And he's not some cosmic killjoy, some angry overlord look, looking to crush you. That's not who he is. He, he is compassionate. He's mighty. He's tender. He's gracious. It says in verse 10 that his reward is with him. Well, whose reward is, is Isaiah talking about here? Well, it's not your reward. It's not my reward. It's his reward. It's the king's reward that is being talked about. He's coming with his reward. What could possibly be God's reward? What could possibly be almighty God, the creator and sustainer of all things? What could possibly be his reward? Well, it's Christmas time, which means that a lot of us are seeking to find like the perfect gift for the, the ones that we love. And which can, it presents challenges, like some people are harder to shop for than others. 15-year-old boys, harder to shop for than others, right? Harder to find the right gift for some people. Some people are just harder to shop for. But what do you get the man who has everything? God. What is his reward? Well, if you keep reading through the rest of Isaiah 40 here, it is an amazing picture. You see that God owns the stars, he owns the mountains, he owns the nations, right? Verses 12 through 17 in particular, it, it says he, he, he holds the waters of the world, right? The seas in the, the palm of his hand, the hollow of his hand. He just holds all of it there. I, I've, I've gone to the beach. I love going to the beach. It's pretty enormous. But God holds it right there in the, the hollow of his hands. It says he, he marks off the galaxies with a span, you know? The span, from his thumb to his pinky, he just marks off the entire universe. It says he owns all of that, and it says later, it's all like dust to him. It's all dust before him. So what, what could God look at as his reward? What could he look at and say, this is my reward, this is my recompense? What could it be? Well, Isaiah tells us what it is. It's you and me. It, it's us. It's his flock. It's his people. That is his reward. How is that possible? How can that even be possible? How can the only one who is perfect, who is perfectly righteous, perfectly just in every way, how could this king who in his nature must drive out and condemn all injustice, all sin, and put away evil for good, how can that be? How can he look at you and me? And see right through us into our hearts and know that even a lot of the good things we do, we do for selfish, sinful reasons. That's how broken and twisted we all are. How can he look in and see all of our weaknesses, all of our flaws, all of our sins? How can this perfect king, how can he look at you and me and say, that's my reward. That's my reward, my people. I'm gathering them into my arms. How can he say that, that you are my treasure, that the stars are nothing compared to you. The stars are nothing compared to you. The mountains are nothing. The, the seas are nothing compared to you. That's how I see you, says God. How can that be? The answer is double payment. Double payment. The warrior is a shepherd. The warrior is a shepherd. Let me ask you this question. Where do we see the power and the glory and the grace of God coming together in one perfect scene? 
Where do we see that coming together? Well, Isaiah points us ahead to that moment a little bit later in his, his book. Isaiah chapter 53, verses 3 through 12, he writes, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter And like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what Isaiah wrote 700 years before Jesus was ever born. Before he ever walked the the, the path to, to Calgary and died there for our sins. One night, night before he was to die. You know, they came to arrest Jesus and, and Peter. Of course it was Peter, right? Reaches for the sword, right? He, he goes to the sword, but Jesus tells Peter, Peter, put away the sword. Put away the sword. Do you not know that I could call to my father at any moment and legions of angels would come to my aid? Put away the sword. Right? Jesus had the power. He had the power. He had all power. He could in any moment just snapped his fingers and done away with all of us. He could do that at any moment. But Jesus possessed the strength enough to be weak. The strength enough to be weak. And he laid down his life for his sheep, for his treasure, for his reward. Jesus Christ is the only answer to how God could have given double How he could give devil, because you see, Jesus' death on your cross is not only so you can be forgiven for your sins, so that the payment can be made for your sins, so so that there's nothing in in your account that that stands there to condemn you anymore. He, He not only just made that payment to forgive you of your sins, he went further. For just as your sins were imputed and put upon Jesus on the cross, where he died for your sins as your sins, His righteousness, he imputed that to you. He gave that to you by faith in Jesus. Your sins were credited to him. 
his righteousness is credited to you. So that every time that God looks at you now in Christ, by faith in Jesus Christ, he looks upon you and he regards you as his treasure, as his reward, as as clean as Jesus, as righteous as Jesus. Not just forgiven, but adopted, brought all the way in. Perfect, unshakable acceptance from Almighty God. That's what Jesus did for you. Double payment. Double payment. The old hymn says it like this. That the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. The double cure. We need to remember that when we sing that. Save from wrath and make me pure. It's both. It's double. His life, death, and resurrection are the double payment that secures not only your forgiveness, but your unshakable acceptance, your adoption. You're being brought into the family of God as beloved children. God not only forgives you, He welcomes you. He welcomes you. He accepts you. No matter what you've done, he's paid for it, and he's paid double. That's why Jesus came. He came to make all that possible. The point of the manger is the cross. The point of the manger is not just the cute little baby Jesus in the manger. The point of the manger is the cross, that he was born to die for you, to take your sins, to give you his perfection, to bring you all the way in. Well then, the, the last question is, what must we do to respond? And it begins w- with understanding the reality of your hopelessness apart from Christ. How utterly hopeless and helpless you are apart from the, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and faith in him. And I, Isaiah is very straightforward about this in verses 6 through 8. He doesn't pull any punches here. He says, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. He compares humanity to grass, right? Just grass. And watch it through the seasons. It's alive and then it's gone. It's dead, right? Grass is here today and tomorrow it's just withered up and gone. It points to the reality of our transiency, right? We are here today. We are gone tomorrow. Life is short. It goes quick, and it just gets quicker and quicker the longer that you live. It is short, and on our own, we are completely helpless and hopeless to save ourselves, to to restore our connection to God, to make things right with him, to, to live in harmony with him, to have any hope of glory with him when he returns and comes the second time. This is a picture of how desperately lost we all are. And we need to understand that. We need to understand how, how hopeless and helpless we are before we can really understand the beauty and the majesty and the glory and the wonder of the grace that Jesus offers us. Before we can truly grasp that and embrace that and, and trust in that, we need to understand that there is absolutely nothing that we can do. Nothing. Nothing. In comparison to our fading, and, our fading and our fragility, Isaiah holds up another sure and unchanging reality. The word of our God, which stands forever, forever. We're here today, going tomorrow. But God in his word endures for all, for all eternity. We can't rely on our, ourselves. We, we can have no confidence in our flesh, but we can have absolute confidence in the word of God. 
absolute confidence in the word of God. Because relying on the word of God is not trusting in something impersonal. It's not trusting in just like, it's not like a rabbit's foot, right? It's not like some good luck charm. No, it's trust in a person. Our reliance upon the word of God is trust in a person, a person who is committed to you, who is so committed to you, he's poured out all his blood on the cross for you. He's poured out everything for you. And at his disposal is everything you could ever need to provide for your care, to provide for everything that you would ever need. It's trust in a person who has given all of himself to you. He lived a life you never could. Perfect, sinless. He died the death that you deserve. Not just a physical death, but he suffered the full cup of God's wrath poured out for our sin on the cross. And he was raised from death to life, displaying his victory over sin and death. And he did it all that he might bring you into his family, that he might gather you in his arms as his own, as his treasure as his reward. His word is reliable because he is the one who speaks it. He is the one who speaks it. Jesus invites you right now, this morning, to take him at his word, to to trust in him, to receive not only forgiveness for your sins, to receive adoption into the family of God, to receive acceptance from God, unshakable acceptance that he has secured for you. That's the only way. That's the only way to receive Christ's comfort. That's the only way to receive Christ's peace. That's the only way to even live your life and begin to start to live your life and honor God. Like some of you want to try to like just obey God more. Like I'm going to do better. I'm going to come to church more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. And that's going to make it better. That won't make it better. You're not even enabled to really do those things more unless you first just rest in his grace. Right? You need to rest there first. The wonder of Christmas is as the Apostle John writes in his gospel account, John chapter one, verses one through four, and then down in verse 14, he says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I invite you, would you look at the cross of Christ today? Would you see that your king has come? He has paid double payment for you. He he has paid that you might be forgiven. He's paid that you might be accepted by God. By his glory, behold his glory, receive his grace. And let's leave behind all of our futile efforts to try to make things right on our own, to try to go our own way, let's lay them down and just rest in his perfect grace for you. Let's come running to Jesus this morning. May you see how he gave everything of himself for you and let it move you to give all of yourself to him. The Lord's Supper gives us an opportunity to do just that. It gives us an opportunity to respond to look at the cross of Christ, to see our king, to see our savior, our warrior shepherd. It's an opportunity to see and remember his payment, his double payment for our sins that secure forgiveness, that secure acceptance as we share in the bread and the cup, taking, remembering his body that was broken, his, his blood that was shed. 
Participating in this meal gives you an opportunity to examine your heart, to, to, to ask for forgiveness, right? To confess your sin, to, to rest in his grace and, and know that you are forgiven. It's an opportunity to respond to the finished work of Jesus Christ. Believers, you're invited to come as we continue to worship here in a moment, to share in this meal, breaking off a piece of the bread, dipping it in the cup. We offer both juice and wine to take as your conscience leads you. The wine is in the glasses marked with twine or string. If you're not a believer in Christ, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. It's, it's a symbol. It's a, it's a way to kind of remember and renew our covenant with walking with Jesus. You don't want a symbol. You want Jesus. And so this is an opportunity while believers are sharing in this meal to take Christ in faith, to receive his grace. As you behold his glory and rest in his grace today, may it not only move you to respond in worship, but may it move all of us to run to the top of the mountains that we see at the end of this passage and want to shout from there to tell everyone else about his glory, about his grace, that they may come to see it, they may come to behold it, they may come to know the grace of King Jesus as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time to gather, to worship. We thank you that you have loved us so beyond anything we could imagine. Would you help us to to see how utterly hopeless we are today and to see the good news that that brings with it? That even though we are far worse than we ever dared to imagine, we are far more loved than we ever dared to dream that you have provided not only forgiveness, but you have provided restored, reconciled relationship. You've provided unending acceptance with perfect, almighty, heavenly Father who loves us, who is for us, who sees us as his treasure, as his reward because of what you have done, Lord Jesus. Would you help us to see that today? Would you help us to to leave everything behind and, and come running to the foot of the cross, clinging to Christ in faith? Would you use that to renew us? Would it bring people to to saving faith in this room? Would it also renew those who've been walking with Jesus to to see the hope that we have and be moved to share that hope with others, to to live more freely in the reality of his glory and grace? pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.